This episode is sponsored by Truflation, independent economic and financial data in real time on chain at truflation.com and DYDX, the largest decentralized perpetuals trading platform. Check out the link in this episode's description for more information. Welcome to the Uncut Podcast with your hosts Stefan Rust and Omar Yahya. We're both entrepreneurs, investors in the tech and crypto spaces and have a diverse background in all things venture capital. In this podcast, you'll join us in one of our many conversations where we discuss tech, crypto, exercise, nascent markets, the structure of government, and how we can all move forward as a society. again you know favorite hour of the week um and we're we're discussing topics that are going to be ever inflation now right it's a, a forever inflation uh not hype inflation not <laughs> <laughs> greed inflation we're talking about forever inflation forever inflation <laughs> Um, yeah, no, so uh, glad to be back and um, to have a great topic today. We're going to go into, you know, an article which was written by Arthur Hayes. Um, and for those of you that don't know, Arthur Hayes was an instrumental figure in building out Bitcoin perpetuals um, on a centralized exchange um, that really helped the adoption of, um, yeah, I suppose, futures in the crypto market. Perps. Uh, Perps. Yeah, exactly. There you go. And now all of those perps you're seeing move into a decentralized environment. Um, and exciting to see the actions that are taking place on all these different perp exchanges. Hopefully we get to see more than just crypto assets being traded on, on those because Truflation is providing an oracle for a lot of these real world asset prices. And we hope to see more of those blossom. But yeah, it was a really great article. I mean, it's 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 it starts off with his journey on a trip to um, Japan, and he's got time to think and 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 uh, reflect on a lot of things. And yeah, it really goes into inflation. And I think the core statement, and this is what we've been saying for a long time at Trueflation at least, and he's just confirming it with a whole set of different um, data uh, data that is underlying that, which is really well laid out and, and, and very well um, put there, right? And I think, you know, if you combine what he's saying, what Balaji's saying, what we're seeing uh, in the market, and to me, he also talks about, you know, uh, how the role of government, we've got a lot of bureaucrats that don't want to leave the limelight. If you go back 10 years ago, we didn't know who Bernanke was or <laughs> who Greenspan, unless you were in the financial industry, you would not have a clue who they are. Today, we've got Christine Lagarde going out there and saying, oh, we are so lucky. It's your money. And you get to choose the color of this money that we're going to print. But you can only choose the color from three <laughs> pre-selected, pre-filtered options. <laughs> so it's like, we'll do the pre-filtering, we'll give you a choice of three, and you get to choose the color, but we can print it like crazy. And by the way, it's my signature on these pieces of paper. <laughs> the the illusion of choice. The illusion of choice, right? And, and yeah, and so I think that's a big sort of interesting angle that we see all of a sudden, these bureaucrats who actually have put us into a very precarious situation. 
um, and, and I don't feel have any empathy to the population other than their own egos and their own pride and their own position as they've had to jostle, elbow, back and forth against all the other um, bureaucrats out there to get to the position that they're at. And they definitely sure as hell don't want to leave it because they're born, bred, perfect bureaucrats and politicians that know how to offload risk and put into anybody that takes a risk, put them into the limelight and, and throw a blame at them. Um, so he, yeah. Funny enough, so Arthur Arthur calls these types of uh, politicians, bureaucrats, the, they call, he calls them the Oprah Winfrey's, yeah. right? This idea that everybody can have money, everybody can have a fantastic life, yeah. You can have a, a, a car full of uh, uh, with a with a full gas tank, whatever medic, Medicare that you need, the whole shebang, and we won't raise any taxes for it. This will all be paid for in debt. So he says these are the two kinds of politicians. You have the Oprah Winfrey's, then you have the Scrooge McDucks. Scrooge McDucks. He was referring to the great example of uh, the former U.S. Uh, Treasury Secretary Andrew Ma- Andrew Mellon, who had this beautiful quote that basically argues for accountability which is exactly what you're referring to. He says, and I'll read it verbatim, liquidate labor, liquidate stocks, liquidate farmers, liquidate real estate. It will purge the rottenness out of the system. High cost of living and high living will come down. People will work harder, live a moral life. Values will be adjusted and enterprising people will pick up the wrecks from less competent people. This was said during the height of the Great Depression by the Secretary of the Treasury. So you can imagine that there was a, a, a breed of politicians, at least at some point, that felt this great sense of accountability and said that there is this uh, bitter medicine that we have to take in order to move on. And the question is, the real question of the article uh, that Arthur poses, how do we move on from this? We're yeah. in a situation with um, enormous global debt, not just uh, national debt, mm-hmm. and we have high inflation everywhere. And he says that the entire world is functionally insolvent. And by that, he means that if extraterrestrials come onto uh, the earth somehow and ask for liquidation of assets to pay the debt, there's just not enough to be around. Why? Fundamentally, has this is this true? Because you borrowed from the future, right? And we only live in the present. So he argues if the ultimately the, out, the total output of the world is not increasing at the same rate as the debt financing requirements, you are functionally insolvent. And to me, it's it's really interesting, sort of all of the, the graphs that he highlights, right, in terms of particularly when you looked at 1980, you know, back in the 80s, right, where a lot of the global trade was really blue, right? The U.S. denominated, right? The U.S. was the, the aspirational country that everybody was looking to. Uh, it was the innovation hub. All these new brands came out of the U.S. Well, look at it, all the movies. They're all created out of the 80s, right? I mean, all these entrepreneurs, all these new brand brands and manufacturing came out of that period. And you look at the globe today, it's very red, Africa's, you know, the influence China has across Africa, across Latin America, purchasing a lot of the resources from those markets, building out infrastructure in those markets, right? Even in the Caribbean that everybody thinks, oh, that, that's, that's the, you know, close to U.S. territory. We need to look after that. But a lot of the trade and a lot of the infrastructure there is built out with the support of Chinese uh, manufacturing and, man- and development, which is a, a, a capitalistic thing, and it's a good thing to see that evolve. And 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 I just think that the level 
of work ethic, the level of input, the level of not entitlement, the actual capitalistic system seems to be working in a communist environment better than in the Western democratic sort of view set. I mean, is I mean, that's that's sort of my takeaway as well a lot. I mean, that, that's exactly right. He, he basically argues that the post-Bretton Woods monetary system was designed for the blue world, which was completely commensurate with um, trade flows. But now you're still using that same system from a, from a uh, reserve currency perspective, but the uh, global trade flow has changed entirely. It's basically completely inverted. By, ca- by count, most uh, countries in the world actually trade with China more than they trade with the U.S., do you think that's a nature of evolution, right? If you're a young country, if with young po- younger population, you're emerging, you're leapfrogging in terms of technology, you're building out new infrastructure as your country goes through a growth phase. Do you think that's a natural sort of evolution that when you go through that growth phase, you don't you don't care about inflation, you're just growing. There's a lot of growth, there's a lot of momentum until you hit a certain level where the growth starts to get, you know, I need to put 80% of my effort into achieving a 20% type of growth versus the vice versa in an earlier stage evolution of a nation. And yeah, do you think, and then because of that, you don't worry about entitlement. You're just worried about how can you capture as much of that growth as possible? Or yeah, do you th- yeah, what's your thought on that? I think there's no fundamental reason why a a very strong economic powerhouse can continue to be an economic powerhouse. Yep. The problem is, is when complacency seeps in. It's uh, the old, I believe, Marvin Hagler quote. He was uh, one of the great all-time uh, boxers. Yeah. He would say, it's very hard to wake up every morning at five in the morning and go run when you wake up in silk robes. Yeah. So it's very hard um, to institutionalize fiscal discipline at the government level and to normalize it at the domestic level when there is cheap and free money, when you wake up in a, and it's sunny outside with your white picket fence and your two and a half kids and your dog, it's hard to force people to think about financial discipline. Yeah, and I suppose that's that's the real challenge that we have, especially, you know, one of the arguments you hear a lot is that when you scale up and when you grow as a nation, your age as people get older in a population, let's put it like that, they start to, everybody thinks they're going to spend more money, right? They spend more money maybe in health and, and, and wellness. But other than that, they don't consume that much anymore, right? I mean, what if I, you know, it's like consumption drops significantly. Other, you know, where, where are they going to spend? They're not going to buy the latest gadgets. They're not going to be consuming. They're not, maybe they buy a private jet at some point or something. But but after that, you know, that the, the, the the capability of and, and consumption drops significantly as as we age more in terms of we get older as a society and we spend less as a society. What does that mean to an economy itself? A lot of the wealth, everybody's talking about, oh, this transition of wealth from the, the you know the boomers to the, the the Gen Y or the Gen X or whatever that transition is. It's going to be trillions of dollars that are going to be handed down. And I don't see that happening. I mean, it's not happening. We've been talking about that for, I mean, I did presentations back in 2014 talking about that. And it hasn't yet happened, right? I mean, and and so when will that happen? And because 
and and by the way, if that happens and the next generation is already 70 years old, are they going to be spending it? (laughs) And how are they just going to be hoarding it even more? The generational wealth transfer model, it's a a very old economic model that was actually used, um, I think it was Samuelson. It was uh, designed to try and determine the uh, fair value of a currency, right? And he uh, ultimately, the argument is that the whole point of the young working now is that they generate value and they store that in in long-term capital. That long-term capital is invested, is given to younger generations that can increase their productivity and increase value creation. That is in lieu of you actually working when you're older. You're basically switching from you providing value to you no longer providing value, but the capital that you accrued from your past generation of value is handed on to the next generation. And so long as you have a steady growth in productivity, and and that's what technology basically affords you, you continue to have economic growth. The problem is when these liabilities actually exceed the value that's going to be created, or even worse, worse when you have complete capital destruction. War is a very good example of com- complete capital destruction, uh, or you can argue, at least in many cases, that's the case. Um, uh, and uh, uh, financial bubbles, or basically uh, inv- invest investing where it actually turns out to just be consumption. I mean, imagine... Uh, a generation of startups that people fundraise for and they use all that money to just you know, go out drinking and they don't actually produce any value. That is real capital destruction. And what that means what that means is you you're basically now going back to the older generation saying, hey, sorry, your your money's no good. Yeah. It didn't actually generate any value. What we're going to need you to do is now work yeah. at this age. And that is basically Arthur in the in the in the article argues that clearly this is not a viable choice. And we've seen what happened in France when uh, people started to think about these issues, just to raise the retirement age from 62 to 64. This was basically the same argument. And the problem with that is people are simply not, that was not the agreement. The societal agreement, the social contract was, I will work when I'm young, save and use that money, lend that out to uh, the younger generations. And they, in order to, to fulfill that part of the covenant, they will produce more value. If they don't, then you are stuck footing the bill. But the, the government will never let that happen. His argument is that uh, if you look at the majority of spending of the U.S. government, um, it is anchored towards defense and social liabilities. And for it to not to have basically complete civil disruption, it will absolutely meet those obligations, uh, both externally in terms of uh, defense spending and internally in terms of social liabilities. So the only way to do it is by printing money. The uh, so let's let's uh, let's take a step back. What is the <laughs> what is the crux of the argument? What is re- what is he really arguing in the article? He basically has one point that he's trying to make. That point is that he thinks the Fed, he thinks really the Fed is the only agent in the system. He outlines a variety of different agents: uh, private investors, foreign investors, yeah. um, the U.S. government, uh, the Federal Reserve. But he argues that basically everybody, with with exception of the Fed, already has one uh, default solution. There is some sort of dominant strategy for all of these people, and it's the Fed that really has to make the choice. And he argues that regardless of what happens, you will continue to see persistent inflation. And so he basically goes through. He doesn't use a lot of maths, but he basically goes through uh, a game the- theoretic exercise to argue that 
regardless of what the Fed does, you will end up having a net issuance of money into the global liquidity system by the Federal Reserve. Um, do you want to break it down for us or, or should I? Yeah, no, go ahead. Break it down. So he makes the following uh, uh, posits. He says, the Federal Reserve basically only has uh, uh, two tools. It's, well, three really, but I'll, I'll put them under under two. One is uh, open, open market operations, basically, um, uh, and the Federal Reserve windows, and two, it's, uh, uh, it's balance sheets. So if, you, if you're a bank, you can go to the central bank uh, window and deposit your, some of your balance sheets in the form of collateral, in the form of uh, uh, treasuries, and you can earn a yield on that. You could also, if you have cash, you can earn interest on excess cash. The majority of banks, if you've ever asked yourself why your, your bank account, your, your checking or your savings account is paying a meagerly 0.1% or 0.2%, whereas market rates for treasuries, for money market funds are in you know 4 and 5%, that's the reason. It's because these systemically important banks are uh, flush with cash, so they actually just go put that cash at the window uh, with the Fed and earn interest on it. The, you know, just 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 on that note, what 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 is that impact of that in an economy? If I am putting money with the Federal Reserve, excess cash that could be used to fund infrastructure, build out investments, support companies, buy their stock, help them grow and invest in in actually building sustainable value for an uh, for a nation uh, versus giving it to the Federal Reserve and just earning five percent on that. Beautiful. That's a beautiful question. So the problem is the long-term interest rates are just way too low. Yeah. The This model only works when you're paid for that long-term duration risk. All banks operate on the yeah. same model. They borrow yeah. they borrow money from the short term and yeah. they go lend it out in the long term. And so long as there is a, a positive spread known as a, a steepened yield curve, yeah. there is a net interest rate, a net interest margin, the NIM. The NIM defines basically bank profitability. If these yield curves are very steep, so if you go lend out money to somebody for 30 years, you earn 20%. If you lend it out to the same person for one year, you earn 1%. Banks are absolutely the best business to be in. What is the problem with the US right now and Europe? These yield curves are inverted. So that model actually doesn't work. What you're saying is basically, the longer I lend you money, the higher the return should be. And the reason why that is the case is because you hold the money longer, which means there's a greater opportunity cost on that money, number one, and a greater risk associated with that money. And therefore, I should be earning more of an interest on the longer-term yield. To meet the short-term funding requirements and liquidity requirements, at the moment, right now, when we talk about an inverse yield curve, it, it means that the interest rates on short-term borrowings is higher than that in the long-term burning. So your T-bonds, which generally refers to five, 10-year um, bonds that the government issues, you're earning less money than on the one-year T-bill, which is referred to as the short-term uh, lending to a government. And that is broken. That's right. And if you think about it from just intuitively, there's there's really three factors here uh, for long-term versus short-term. If I give you money for 30 years, there is uh, a, a larger risk, a compounding risk that this venture will fail yep. simply because of the passage of time. Yep. 
and it's more it's a more complicated endeavor else why would you need to hold that money for if you if i said hey i need money to build the house i say okay you probably i'll lend you that money for uh, the time it takes to build the house let's say a year but if you say i need it to build a million houses then that's a lot more money and then more importantly there's a lot that can go wrong in that enterprise that's the first bit the Second bit is basically the time value of money is there will be other opportunities that arise between now and the maturity of that debt that might be more uh, profitable or opportune, but I can't invest in them because I've already given you that money. So that has to be part of that premium. The third, and that's actually the most important uh, factor is uh, liquidity. So I can take that money and buy donuts every day for 30 years, or I can give it to you. So I'm deferring consumption. I'm excluding any other uh, opportunity to take risk, which might yield a higher nominal return, and I'm locking it up for 30 years. So these three things translate to premiums. And yeah. when in the case of an inverted yield curve, all of this is is completely annulled. It's basically the opposite. And 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 partially, I mean, why why is this inverted yield curve happening? Why is it happening right now? Right? Why? I guess. Are we only, you know, I, I, you know, and, and you're seeing a large, uh, I don't know, there's there's a lot of movement happening in the planet at the moment. But the biggest thing is there's a big set of debt that the, not that the, the Fed has, but the government, the Treasury, right? I mean, the U.S. Treasury has to fund a lot of activities. And I think Arthur breaks down into four different categories, right? The biggest ex- or three different categories. It's like social security and healthcare, and then it's treasury itself, right? The debt, the the interest to service the debt, just the interest, right? And mm-hmm. then it's coming to the defense itself, right? Defense, defense, the the the, the yeah, the defense industry uh, and that whole apparatus that, and, and and how that's coupled to servicing war, I guess, right? And you look at the, those elements, how do I fund all of that? And why and what is the benefit to a nation if I'm funding all of that? The only element I can see that has a benefit, would you could argue, would be debt defense, because that's building out maybe modern infrastructure and technology that then gets trickled down um, into products, chipsets, et cetera, et cetera, right? That's the only thing I can see out of those three categories that are or four categories that are really adding economic benefit to a community, a society. Precisely. And the, the really the only way to fix this is the following. So the culprit here is the debtor. And who is the largest debtor? It's the government of the United States. The government of the United States can issue whatever form of debt it wants. It can issue uh, uh, short-term debt, three-month debt, uh, it can issue one-year debt, and it can issue 30-year debt. Now, it would love uh, today to issue all of its debt uh, at long durations, at the prices um, that we get from the yield curve. Why? Because it's actually cheaper. It's literally cheaper today per unit bond if you just go out and issue a single treasury worth $1,000 or whatever the, 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 the nominal value is. That would actually be cheaper then issuing it at the 30-year rate would be actually cheaper than issuing it at the two-year rate, which is yeah. kind of bizarre. But the problem is that only exists at the margin. If the government tried to issue the majority of its debt at the uh, uh, long end of the curve, there's simply no market appetite for it. And he argues that foreign investors have no reason to buy this debt. Uh, private investors have no reason to buy this debt. 
So if you were to do that, then you would basically be enforcing discipline upon yourself because the price, the yield curve would actually go back to a positively steeping yield curve. And then you would have to basically raise uh, taxes in order to finance the residual or clearly reduce spending. So liquidity is much more important to people than actually locking down money. So you have to provide a significant yield if you want me to lock in my money for 10 years or whatever, 30 years. But the Precisely. interesting thing is, you know, there was a podcast, you know, that came out just the other and, you know, I mean, I think it was Chamath, he was talking about, oh, the US should issue 100 year bonds. <laughs> uh, which is, in, in you know, the UK. who's going to buy in that? The, you know, who's going to lock in 100 years worth of unless I can get my coupons every year that pays, I don't know how much, you know, it's like, well, in the UK, they have instruments that don't mature. They have infinitely, uh, infinitely long tenors. Yeah. And so I lock in my money, my, 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 yeah, I don't know. What, what's it called? The cold you, earn a perp you earn, you earn uh, a coup like an interest rate payment at, uh, at perpetuity. So the it's holder of this instrument gets paid a certain rate and that's it. <laughs> you just, I mean, yeah, you lock in your fixed capital and all you get is the rate and you never get your fixed capital back unless you trade it and somebody buys that bond mm -hmm. off you for that income. And how mm -hmm. high are the yields on that? Uh, they vary. You, you can, you can oh, look yeah? it up. Yeah. But the, the premise was it was a simple uh, mathematical exercise. They were like, okay, let's just extrapolate out the yield curve yeah. and price it accordingly. And they fluctuate a lot clearly based on uh, it's another way to just provide liquidity. But they were like, okay, what's the point of having because these markets are auctioned off differently, you have basically have segmentation. And they're like, okay, let's just tie the long end of the curve all together in a single instrument, which from a financial engineering perspective actually makes sense. Like, nobody has the appetite to analyze a 99 year uh, instrument versus a 103 year instrument. And when you need granularity at the long tail of the yield curve, they were just like, fuck it. We're just going to group it all under a single instrument. So it's simple, it's simple uh, financial engineering. It's not, there's no deep, profound meaning there. It seems, though, that the individuals in charge are, are, are loving the glorified limelight. They're on conferences, they're speaking, and they're throwing populations around like we're on a chessboard. And in fact, they're not even addressing the real issue. There was a really good a journalist, I think she was from CNBC or from Bloomberg, or I don't know, one of the mainstream medias, Sarah Epstein, I think her name was, or Sarah, I can't remember. And she was grilling Powell, the English Fed Reserve, I mean, the Fed Reserve of all Europe and, and Japan on one panel. And she was giving them really tough questions. But you could see they were pretty uncomfortable with answering those detailed questions in this. And what has happened as well is we're no longer just passive participants and passengers on this journey. We're active participants. We're educated. We're smart. We have an insight. We are sharing information and learning from multiple sources out there. What is the right kind of institutions that we need in place to actually address the problems at hand? Who are they? Where do we find them? Where do we find them? Well, we need to find um, a secretary of the treasury um that behaves in a certain in the same way as um the one during the great depression that we mentioned before um uh former secretary uh, andrew mellon the issue here again is do you try and take the bitter medicine in the short term knowing that there will be pain knowing that there will be creative destruction knowing that there is going to be 
uh, a lot of uh, bankruptcies uh, in the short term, but this will ultimately lead to survival and hopefully thriving in the long term? Or do you try and kick the can down the road? That is basically the question that every single politician that's related, that's interested in monetary policy, that is basically what they have to do. It's the dichotomy between the Scrooge McDucks and the uh, Oprah Winfrey's uh, of financial policy. Um, at some point, at some point, this becomes so clear to the electorate. We're, we're not there yet, but at some point it becomes so clear because uh, the central bank, regardless of what they do, whether it's tightening or easing, which is actually what Arthur argues in the, in the, um, in the article, regardless of what they do, they won't actually be able to stop inflation. That is basically the crux of his argument. He says the the only way for this to uh, practically happen is if the central bank becomes a net seller of its balance sheet, meaning it actually starts to dump treasuries on the market as uh, foreign investors are, are doing and as, yeah, and as clearly the government of the United States, by definition, when it issues debt, that's what it's doing. And he says that this would lead to basically a run on the uh, U.S. economy in the sense that nobody will want to be holding debt. If they, if you realize that the central bank is starting to dump assets, well, you're going to try and get out of those assets as quickly as possible. And this would send deals soaring everywhere, including the short term. So the government will not be able to finance its debt and uh, either in the short term or the long term. So he says something like that by the Fed. Basically, dumping treasuries wholesale on the on the uh, open market would just cause absolutely pand- pandemonium. And he actually goes through and does takes a snapshot of what is happening today and just looks at the net issuance of money yeah. given the quantitative tightening that the Fed is doing, which is whatever equivalent of over the time frame of the analysis ninety five billion. He says that he goes back and he aggregates the net interest that's being paid by the U.S. government, which has to be paid in cash. Right, that added to it um, all of the other liabilities and subtract from it the liquidity, the cash liquidity that's being withdrawn by the central bank. That number is still a net positive right now, sitting at about five billion. I forget the time period. Actually, let me uh, let me look it up in the article. Um, the net cash flow uh, monthly is still uh, five point around five point six billion, even after accounting for. Um, the uh, uh, quantitative tightening program at 95 billion, he says that the uh, Fed and Treasury are still having a, a, a nominal issuance of about 100 billion. So his argument that, of course, the Fed can simply tighten even more and make that net cash flow negative, right. but in order for them to get to that stage, they basically have to start selling Treasuries. And the second you sort of cross that uh, that inflection point, then you get market dynamics enforced upon you by people selling treasuries everywhere. Nobody wanting to hold your debt. And, and wasn't that part of the reason why, I mean, that's rumored to be part of the reason why Yellen went to China, because China also sits on a lot of U.S. debt. And, you know, in order trying to mitigate the selling of that, or I don't know if that's the right case, but but... You know, that was rumored to be one of the topics. I think the the issue there is they're trying to set basically a floor. They're trying to say, listen, we're going to put the gloves on, but there's going to be some rules. Like when you go into a a boxing ring, we're going to agree that these two fellas are going to beat each other up, but there are going to be some rules. And basically, they're trying to put a a floor. What are the set of rules that even when, even though, you know, when the bell rings, we're going to try and punch each other in the face, let's keep it clean. That's basically the point of those, including the Secretary of State, Secretary of Treasury, um, 
that's basically the point. Yeah. I, t- I mean, it's a tough situation, um, but but we're just constantly pushing the can out, I think, you know, and inflation's definitely here to stay. And, and, and all the arguments here are, are, are generally proving that, you know, are, are proving that. And so a lot of the data and it, anyway, it, it's it's going to be an interesting evolution. And I think one of the things is also he says, you know, the central bankers, they do come together and they do talk to each other. And, you know, I think what is the exit out of this, right? One of the ways is to move into CBDCs. And I think this is why we're moving into CBDCs and the governments are so excited about these CBDCs, right? They're really excited about it because ultimately they have levers that that all of a sudden they can control. And you're seeing what's happening right now in the case of China. I see inflation booming in housing market. Oh, we're going to squeeze in and tighten all this payments and investments in the housing sector. We're going to, oh, people need more meat and there's a lot of inflation in meat. Oh, well, you can't buy meat anymore. You have to buy soybeans or something like that. Or there's an, you know, so ultimately they have a, you know, an ampli, you know, it's like the music amplifiers. Remember with all the thousands <laughs> of buttons on there and you'd move mm-hmm. up and down to get the optimal performance associated with the sound and the clarity of the sound and the tuning of this high pitch versus the low pitch. And I think that's, that's right. really where they're trying to get to. Um, and drive that. And they do have, I mean, they will take a lot of market dominance, right? They will have an impact in crypto with the CBDCs. There's no doubt about it because they just have the distribution and the mechanism and means to enforce those that distribution, right? And, and, and drive that distribution into the marketplace. And, you know, we think there'll be about 300 to 500 billion in circulation by the end of 2025, and I think you're. I think you're right yeah. in that um, the point of these tools is instead of trying to do monetary policy with a sledgehammer, they can now have something closer to a scalpel. But all this does is again push the can down, kick the can down the road. Definitely, this just buys you buys you more runway. Yeah. But it doesn't structurally solve anything. Fiscal I mean, it, discipline it, 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 is the only way. Yeah. And again, you. People have to face the music. When you walk into sure. when you walk into a casino and you put some play some bets on a horse, and your horse, uh, uh, whatever, let's say you didn't do parlays, it's a, let's say you just lose the bet, you have to walk away with no money. People that have people that have invested in long term opportunities that have generated not just uh, low returns but no returns and have destroyed principal have to face the fact, including pension funds, have to face the reality that some of that money is just gone. And that is your business. Why, you have to deal with that. Why? Yeah, I mean, to me, it's just we invest in, 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 in shares. We buy crypto. We, we, we lose assets. I mean, okay, you never lose. In shares, you may lose 90% of it, you know, you, and, and, you know, that's possible. Uh, in crypto, you may lose 99% of it. In some cases, you may even lose 100% of it because it went bust or something. But you've lost it, and then you have to recover. And I think you've built within the crypto land, there is a society that feels we have to make it back up, right? We have to. I mean, I just remember after Luna bust. <laughs> Uh, after Luna crashed, you know, there was the Korean blockchain week. And I remember I went to Korea and Luna 
The capital of Luna was Korea, right? It was in Korea. It was a Korean poster child. It was changing the world. It was building a new stable coin, right? That people had, it had a massive adoption. Economics weren't quite um, well, but, <laughs> there yet. but a lot of people lost a shed load of money, including myself. Uh, but, but we, <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of, I know you didn't, but that, uh, you know, that's why you're the math behind the, 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 you know, the, 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 the bronze, right. Or the brains behind the bronze. And, um, maybe we should change it. <laughs> no, um, but anyway, so we looked at that and you, I, I, what, what surprised me was like two months after that burnout and billion, 50, 60, 80 billion, I don't know how big it was or hundred billion when it was at the, the peak, right? That all woof, evaporated. And two months later, you go to Korea, blockchain week, it's hustle, it's bustle, it's momentum, positive. How do I make it up again? Where do I make it up? What's the new project? Where do I need to go to work again? How do I build it out? And just that fire inside people's mindset because the opportunity, the hope was there and the aspiration of being able to achieve that hope and pursue that opportunity was there. And that fire and the success that, oh, he made it. And it was within one to two degrees of separation, we could move in that direction, right? And he made it. And he's, I know him. He was on the street. We were together. We were, you know, sort of that sort of collaboration and that spirit is there what took and recovered, you know, I mean, not quite yet recovered, but in the position of bringing crypto to a sense of recovery and that crypto land as a nation, uh, you know, towards a recovery, right? And so how can you create that in an economy like the US and how can you turn that around? I mean, it, it, it's very simple. You just have to extrapolate that thought experiment to the entire world. So yeah. uh, grandma, grandpa, mom and pop and... Uh, John and Jenny, they all walk into the casino and they all put their money down and yeah. only one or two of them actually come back, end up, you know, making money on it. So what do you do? You basically have two options. You either tell the losers that you're going to go back home empty handed and we're going to have to have mac and cheese for dinner or you try and socialize the losses. But unfortunately, the winners, let's say John was the winner. He already bought beer when he was at the casino. He already <laughs> spent that money. And so... Someone in that family has to reckon with the fact that the money is simply not there. And so you have to, when you go back home, you have to, for, you have to enforce some fiscal discipline and you have to create some value in order to earn some of it back. That is just the way the world works. But I, I come back to our last podcast, right, where we talked about how government's role should not be that of regulation and, and stimming innovation and, and growth. However, that of, of guidance and providing, you know, fluidity, taking out friction in the growth, right? Is there a way that we can automate and incentivize the departments to streamline uh, efficiencies in automating and simplifying processes, submissions, uh, forms, uh, you know, reclaiming ta you know, all of this, if there were a way to automate and make it as user friendly as we have all of our web services to interact with Facebook and threads and Twitter and, and YouTube and all of these, if we could make it as user friendly as Amazon and Shopify to spend money, but to engage with these institutions to ensure I am in compliance, but 
enable me to further and simplify and not hire 27 lawyers and 30,000 accountants to be able to file to to do XYZ? The, the answer is, uh, is unfortunately a resounding no. And uh, Arthur <laughs> argues, <laughs> argues in the article, basically this is a byproduct of the one vote, uh, one, uh, one person, one vote, uh, democratic uh, form of government. He says, by definition, capitalism tends to lead to uh, power laws, distribution of wealth. And uh, you don't have a proportional uh, distribution of voting power. You have an equal distribution of voting power. So plot your uniform distribution, overlay on top of that a power law distribution, and ask yourself how you can square that circle. And the answer is, it's just not possible. So it is always a bad idea to try and run for government and say, I'm going to take away the subsidies, I'm going to increase your cost of living in the short term, I'm going to feed you bits of medicine, you just cannot get elected. And so the game theory says that you have to promise more free stuff. Yeah, especially if like 60% or 50% of your population is working for it and in some way with the government. <laughs> Even if they weren't, all they have to do is just lie on the long tail of uh, capital accumulators where yeah. they have very little capital. So basically, Arthur argues that, which is sort of intuitive, in a universe in which you have a power law distribution of wealth, the Oprah Winfrey's will always get elected uh, uh, into office and the Scrooge McDuck's will never get elected into office. No. Until something breaks. And then you get the Scrooge McDuck in there. So it's, it's, it's that cycle of what hard times breed soft, uh, hard people, soft times breed soft people. Oh, I can't remember that cycle, right? It's like it's, uh, it's a very famous uh, saying. It says, uh, um, uh, hard times uh, make hard men Hard men uh, make soft times, soft times make soft soft uh, men, and then soft men generate hard times. So it's um it's that cycle, and and I mean it, it, uh, just coming back to the the sort of whole. I mean Lawrence Lawrence Lessig, I don't know, he's like a famous. Um, I think he ran for president at one point as well. He did a good study on 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 the democratic vote and the actual breakdown of how, you know, the single vote, single person, single vote, and what the effect of that in actuality really is. You know, if you break it down, you actually are not, it's, it's like your vote is not one person, one vote. It's actually 10% of a, a person's vote, right? I mean, he broke it down in detailed, um, um, in, in detail and, and, and sort of really was trying to change that in terms of, you know, based on, yeah, you know, all the different um, um, policies that that are in place to actually, you know, it's it's very much like Lagarde. Oh, you can choose the currency. You have the right to, you know, be a federal. But all you can choose is a color, and the color is from a pre-selected environment. So actually, you feel, oh, I've got a vote, but actually, I don't have a vote, which is what we started the conversation in, right? The perception of voting and the, influence, the the illusion of choice, and it's a it's a good a good place to stop. Yeah. So yeah, you know, guys, read the article. It's really in, 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 it's it's good learning. It doesn't give you immediate alpha, but it shows to you how do you hedge yourself in the future when we're going to have in hyperinflation or inflation. It's going to be here to say, and people 
you know, think that we're now down at 2% inflation, bear in mind that 2% is on top of the 12% that we had last year. So we're not, the cost is not rising as fast as it did last year. And the mindset is you're still realizing that that bucket, uh, that liter or that gallon of milk is now $6, not $3 anymore. That's because of multiple years of accumulation. And you are still going to experience it. That price is not going to come down. It's going to go up another 3% or 4% in, you know, and so it's going to go up even more based on the projections that we're seeing. So ever, everflation, inflation is here to stay. It's going to come back, and this illusion of quantitative tightening, bringing down inflation, is going to be a short-lived one. But let's enjoy this short-lived um, correction that we're going to see. And Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies might be the answer of independence and an ultimate hedge against... Um, actually, one question is, you're seeing all these new currencies come up, right? The BRICS have announced they want to have a currency that's going to be backed by gold and other real-world assets. Do you have a thought on that? Uh, I mean, I think these these baskets of currencies have existed for for a long time. That was kind of the point. That was kind of the point of the U.S. dollar as well, until it becomes untenable, and then you're back to the fiat the fiat regime. Mm. The second you realize that by requiring by law the ability to redeem assets for cash, this enforces physical discipline. At some point, you realize this is too hard to deal with. I'm just going to issue things at face value. So, hide your wife, hide your kids. Everflation is here. See you next time. Thank you, everybody.